Welcome to Yesterday Meets Today, Themes Throughout History. I'm Spencer Vollmer, your host and guide as we explore the themes connecting the histories of the distant and not-so-distant past with each other and also with our own more recent history. Together, we'll boldly venture out in pursuit of knowledge, always striving to learn new things about the past, the present, and maybe even a little bit about ourselves along the way. week two of our Renewal and Rebirth theme. Last week, we explored several parts of the ancient world, including Babylon, Greece, Rome, and a little peek at Egypt. We found our theme in New Year's celebrations and beyond. This week, we're heading over to China. We aren't going to focus exclusively on the Chinese New Year, but it will be a big part of today. From our start there, we're going to look beyond to see what we can find. I imagine most people know of the Chinese New Year. It's certainly not confined within the borders of China, and celebrations can be found in many countries, including right here in the United States. Not as a national holiday, but among communities with city involvement varying from place to place. What you may not know is that this celebration is thought to be at least 3,000 years old. The origins go back to the Shang Dynasty from 1600 to 1046 BCE. Over time, the beginning and end dates of this dynasty have been debated, but following the Xia Shang Zhou chronology project, we have these dates for the beginning and the ending. The Shang dynasty is also where we get the earliest written records in Chinese history. They're also credited with ushering in China's Bronze Age, utilizing it for bronze vessels and weapons dating at least as far back as 1500 BCE. There is a founding myth for the dynasty recounted in the Annals of the Yin by Sima Qian. The myth tells of a woman named Jiandi, second wife of Emperor Ku. Emperor Ku was said to have descended from the legendary yellow emperor Huangdi. Jiandi swallowed an egg dropped by a black bird. Following this, she somehow gave birth to Xie, who was said to be the first ancestor to the Shang lineage. Among his accomplishments, he was said to have helped Yu the Great, a legendary king of China, control the great flood of Gan Yu that lasted for at least two generations. As a side note, have you ever noticed how many different places have legends about a great flood? According to the Annals of the Yin, the Shang Dynasty was founded 13 generations after Xie. This occurred when his descendant, Tang, fought in the Battle of Mingtiao during a thunderstorm. In this battle, he defeated the tyrant Jie, who controlled the Xia dynasty in 1600. Jie was not killed in the battle, but died later of an unnamed illness. Tang is recorded as having been a good king. Early in his reign, China faced several droughts. These were so bad that some families were forced to sell their children because they were so poor. Tang had golden coins made and given to these families with the intent that they would buy their children back. It is also said that he offered himself as a sacrifice to end the drought and rain began falling during the ceremony so that he did not have to go through with it. Naturally, it's difficult for us to differentiate fact from legend, but that's the story of the founding of the Shang Dynasty. As for the Chinese New Year, the celebration was originally established to celebrate the beginning of a new planting season in spring, from which we get one of its alternate names, the Spring Festival, the other name being the Lunar New Year. 
it might not surprise you that the celebration isn't called the Chinese New Year in China. In Taiwan, officially known as the Republic of China, the official name is Lunar New Year. In neighboring China, officially the People's Republic of China, the official name is Spring Festival. Beyond their borders, Chinese New Year and Lunar New Year are common names in places where it is not an official holiday but still celebrated. There's not much need for people in China to refer to their own celebration as Chinese. Now there's obviously much more to the holiday than celebrating a new planting season. This is because it became intertwined with myth and legend, which gave it different meanings. Before I talk about that, let's look at when the new year actually begins. The Chinese New Year, determined by the lunisolar Chinese calendar, usually falls on the second new moon following the winter solstice and lasts for 15 days through to the next full moon. The date of this new moon changes yearly and falls anywhere between January 21st and February 20th. This year it falls on February 12th, a Friday. From what I found, there was actually an attempt to move the celebration to a standard date in the Gregorian calendar but this was quickly shut down as a very unpopular idea. One popular myth surrounding the holiday is that of Nian, which is now the Chinese word for year. This beast lived either under the sea or in the mountains. Every new year, it would emerge to hunt and eat villagers, especially children, during the night. The villagers were at a loss as to how to deal with the Nian. They didn't see any way to fight it, so one year they decided to hide from it all except one old man. This man said he would not hide. Instead, he would remain in the village to get revenge on the Nian. Of course, the villagers thought he was crazy and went into hiding without him. While they were gone, the old man put up red papers and set off firecrackers in the night. When the villagers returned, they were shocked to find the village intact. Looking to the old man, they assumed he must have been some kind of deity who appeared in the village to save them. They now knew that the Nian was afraid of both the color red and of loud sounds. From this, some traditions grew. Villagers wore red clothes, hung red lanterns, and put up red spring scrolls over all of their windows and doors. To ensure the Nian was too frightened to attack, they would also set off firecrackers. After that, the Nian never returned. It was later captured by an ancient Taoist monk named Hongjun Lao Tzu, after which it permanently retreated to a nearby, unnamed mountain. So the story goes. We can't be sure of exactly how old the story is, but it is most certainly integrated into the Chinese New Year. So now you know where it came from. Let's explore how the Chinese New Year is celebrated. The 15-day celebration is preceded by New Year's Eve, during which families often gather for a large feast. Traditionally, this includes dumplings formed to look like ancient coins in northern China, while in southern China, sticky rice cakes are traditional. Other foods included are tangerines, fish, and uncut noodles. Each of these is symbolic. In some Chinese dialects, tangerine is similar to the word for luck. Similarly, the pronunciation of the Chinese word for fish is a homophone for abundance or surplus. As for the uncut noodles, these are said to symbolize a long life. And these are just a few of the traditional items eaten. And because the number eight is associated with good fortune, eight individual dishes or courses may be served at this meal. 
So you can see where there's already a sense of setting the stage, preparing for this new year, that sense of renewal that we're looking for. In earlier years, families might have gone to a temple a few hours before midnight to pray for a prosperous new year. This included lighting the first incense of the coming year. Modern celebrations have, for many, replaced that tradition with parties and a countdown to the new year. Firecrackers were lit to scare away evil spirits, which we saw with the Nyan, and household doors were sealed. These doors were not opened again until morning as part of the opening the door of good fortune ritual. There's also a tradition of going to bed late, or not at all, which is called Shosui, still practiced today and thought to increase a parent's longevity. Which brings us to midnight and into the first day of the New Year's celebrations. The first day is dedicated to welcoming deities and includes scaring off any evil spirits. Therein lies the connection to the story of the Nian. You certainly don't want to go through the symbolic traditions of renewal and rebirth with evil spirits all around you. Some families have a lion dance troupe, and members of this troupe wear a lion costume and mimic the movements of a lion to bring luck and fortune, as well as drive away lingering evil spirits. Typically, one person controls the head and the other controls the rear. While commonly performed at the Chinese New Year, the lion dance is found in other traditional, cultural, and religious festivals. As you might have guessed, the dance itself has a long history with it or similar traditions going back thousands of years. And we'll have to talk about that some other time. Other traditions on this first day include visiting the most senior members of extended families, parents, grandparents, and so on. Married family members give red envelopes containing cash. These are meant as a form of blessing with the intent of suppressing aging and challenges to come in the new year and are, appropriately, given to junior members of the family, children and teenagers mostly. Business managers also give these red envelopes as bonuses. In this case, it's symbolic for good luck, health, and wealth. The modern age has even had an effect on this tradition, bringing the ability to give the red envelopes digitally. I'd guess that's especially nice when families can't be together for the celebration, though I'd also imagine there is still a strong connection to this symbolism being a physical form of expression. And that's day one. You can see how these traditions are all setting the stage for the coming year. The symbolic renewal, or rebirth, we've been talking about, expressed in various symbolic forms. Oh, and one more thing. No sweeping. No sweeping at all on the first day. It's considered bad luck because it'll sweep out the good fortune for the coming year. Day two is known as the beginning of the year. Back in Imperial China, beggars went from family to family with a picture of the God of Wealth shouting, The God of Wealth has come! to those living in each household. These people gave what is called lucky money to these messengers of the God. Also, married daughters would visit their birth parents, which, traditionally, they had little chance to do. Day three is known as Red Mouth, or Chigo's Day. On this day, rural villages burn paper offerings and consider it lucky to have visitors or to go visiting themselves. Day four, among those who celebrate the entire 15 days, is dedicated to returning business to normal with spring dinners. Keep in mind, not every community celebrates all 15 days. 
Day five is the god of wealth's birthday. It's common to find people shooting off firecrackers on this day. The purpose in this case isn't to scare evil spirits away, but rather to get the attention of Guan Yu, a military general who served under the warlord Liu Bei during the later Eastern Han Dynasty, who was later deified in the Sui Dynasty sometime between 581 and 618 CE. By getting his attention, people hope to gain his favor and good fortune in the following year. Day 6 is Horses Day. Leading to this day, people have been storing their garbage and now throw it away in order to drive away the ghost of poverty. Symbolically, throwing out the hardships of the previous year and ensuring good fortune for the coming year. Day 7 is Renry. Renry is traditionally believed as the day humans were created, so this is like the birthday of humanity as a whole. Some Chinese Buddhists see this as one of the days to avoid meat. Some communities in Southeast Asia eat raw fish salad as another symbolic means of ensuring wealth and prosperity. Day 8 brings a family dinner, this time celebrating the birth of the Jade Emperor, also known as the Ruler of Heaven. By now, most people have returned to work, so at least some employers will host a lunch or dinner for the employees as a way to thank them for their hard work. Day 9 is the birthday of the Jade Emperor. In China, it is a time to offer him prayers. In some communities, it is even more important than the New Year itself. Day 10 continues the Jade Emperor's birthday celebration. Days 11 and 12 are dedicated to feasting with family and friends. Day 13 is something of a recovery day following all the food consumed during the feasts. Vegetarian foods are eaten to help the digestive system, well, recover. Day 14 is a day of preparation for the festival that closes out the New Year celebrations. And day 15 is the day of the Lantern Festival. This is the day of the first full moon of the year, which also marks the end of these celebrations. The festival is at least as old as the Western Han Dynasty, which spanned 206 BCE to 25 CE. We have several legends about how the Lantern Festival began. Some are tied to the Han Emperor Ming, another ties it to Taoism and the god Tianguan, another ties it to a warrior named Lan Moon in ancient China. There's several more legends beyond that, and I won't go into them today, but we do know one thing. Whichever one is true, it was around during the Western Han Dynasty and most likely predates it. For the Lantern Festival, everyone gathers in the streets whether they celebrated the entirety of the preceding Chinese New Year festivities or not. Early on, people gathered in the yards to give offerings to the gods. The nearby lantern was representative of a god's seat. When used outside the festival, a Kongmin lantern was used to signify safety following some kind of attack. In the festival, they represent success, hope, and happiness. Another lantern known as the Sky Lantern would be given to couples without children in order to invite pregnancy. Mothers received two lanterns to symbolize safety for both the mother and her child. Some regions even have a sort of gender reveal tradition in which a lantern is burned and the shape of the ashes determines the gender. I do wonder how accurate that is. Kind of sounds more fun and less dangerous than the ever-growing methods of gender reveals here. 
Traditional lanterns are red and oval shaped, but these are certainly not all you find. Some festivals have games in which riddles are written on the lanterns. Some stories even claim you can find love through these games. Today's celebrations can be grand, with countless lanterns both large and small and in many shapes. One impressive display that I read about is a dragon pole in Chengdu, located in southwest China's Sichuan province. This lantern is 38 meters high, which is about 124 feet. Among these celebrations, we also find a sense of family togetherness. During the festival, people eat a rice ball called Wanxiao in northern China or Tangyuan in southern China. It's a glutinous rice ball filled with syrup, red bean paste, or other options, and they are typically boiled and served in hot water, but may also be fried or steamed. Because the name Tangyuan is similar to the word for reunion, these rice balls are symbolic of family togetherness and reunions. And that's the Chinese New Year. A good bit of it anyway. There is symbolism absolutely everywhere you look. Wealth, fortune, togetherness, and more are woven into every single tradition. And all of them are in preparation for the new year. That symbolic rebirth and renewal of life as one year comes to a close and another begins. And just as I mentioned, not everybody celebrates the full extent of these festivities, and what's celebrated may vary from region to region. So now that we've covered that, let's take a look beyond the Chinese New Year to see where our theme appears. One place where we find it is in Taoism, which refers to both a religious aspect and a philosophical one. Taoism, also romanized as Taoism, is dated back to the 4th century BCE or so. The Chinese philosopher Lao Tzu, whom you may have heard of, is considered one of the founders of Taoism. We aren't actually entirely sure that he really existed, but if he did, he is believed to have lived sometime between the 6th and 4th centuries BCE. He worked to instruct people in Tao, meaning the way, in order to help them live better lives. One of the fundamental texts for both religious and philosophical Taoism, the Tao Te Ching, has been attributed to Lao Tzu. Though, with his existence in question, so too is the origin of this text. The other important text is the Zhuangzi, dated back to the 3rd century BCE and is attributed to the Chinese philosopher Zhuangzhou, who lived in the 4th and 3rd centuries BCE. I don't want to get too far into a discussion of Taoism, so I'm going to focus on what is relevant for this theme and leave the rest for another time. You've almost certainly seen the Taijitu, also called the yin-yang symbol. It has great importance when looking at Taoism. It ties into the Taoist cosmology, which exists in a cyclic nature. That is, the universe is constantly recreating itself. This is part of the idea that all things are part of qi, which is a vital energy necessary to form all life. The ancient practice of qigong is designed to help cultivate and balance one's qi. This energy, or force, is constantly transforming from a diluted state to a condensed state and back again. When condensed, life is created. 
When diluted, it has indefinite potential. The two stages of qi go back to yin and yang. The balance of two complementary extremes always playing against each other, yet each is incapable of existing without the other. So there's this constant transformation. The universe constantly recreates itself, which we could see as renewal. I wouldn't necessarily call it rebirth, though I would say that of the transitions of qi. The life formed by qi isn't reborn, but the qi itself is. Reborn into new life, and when that life dies, reborn into its diluted form. It's all constant and, in a way, without beginning or ending. Only transitions and transformations, renewals and rebirths. As part of this cosmology, an important part of the Taoist rituals is the spiritual alignment with the cosmic forces, the goal of which is to achieve longevity and possibly create an immortal spiritual body which, if achieved, continues on beyond the death of the physical body. The practices used to accomplish this are collectively called nadan, or internal alchemy, and are divided into what's called the three treasures. Qi, which we've mentioned, it must be balanced and allowed to flow freely in order to maintain one's health. Jing, which is the Chinese word for essence, and refers to energies within the physical body. It was thought that death occurred when Jing was drained, so preserving it could lead to a long life and even that state of immortality. And Shen, which refers to God and the soul, namely the body's original soul. The goal here is to become conscious of that original soul through meditation. So the overall goal is to bring these three things into balance for a long life and possibly an immortal one, to achieve rebirth into a new form beyond the physical. Now one thing I'm not sure of in this regard is how qi is affected by immortality. I'm not sure if it remains in the new immortal form or transitions back into the diluted state upon the physical death. Either way, there is a goal of rebirth in these practices. That's just a peek into Taoism, finding a bit of what we need for our theme. And Taoism is still around today, thousands of years after it began, and is one of the five official religious doctrines in China as well as Taiwan. Where it hasn't spread as a whole, you can often find elements of it around the world. You can rest assured I'll be talking more about it in the future. One more point here. In southern China and Taiwan, some Taoist temples have distinctive figures on their roofs, namely dragons and phoenixes. Made from multicolored tiles, these figures are associated with yin and yang, phoenix and dragon respectively. Though this particular phoenix is a different breed from the one we talked about last week. This bird is called fenghuang. There is an association with the sun and with fire, but this bird does not burst into flames and undergo a rebirth from the ashes. It's a composite of male and female, though often female to appear opposite the male dragon as a symbol of marital harmony. So this phoenix is in fact not part of our theme in the way the Greek, Roman, Egyptian bird is. It is immortal without the need for rebirth. It appears in Chinese culture as far back as 3000 BCE, just before the death of the Yellow Emperor. It only appears in times of peace and at the beginning of a new era. So you could find our theme in this point, 
A new era would be a time of renewal or rebirth for the people living in it, and the appearance of Feng Huang heralds this new age. Feng Huang symbols good things like virtue and justice. In royal courts, it became associated with the empress, while the dragon was associated with the emperor. It became connected to music and Confucian virtues. Decorating a house with its image conveyed the honesty and loyalty of those living there. But not rebirth by fire. On that note, some call it the Chinese phoenix. As you can see now, this bird may fall under the phoenix name, but it really is quite different. So just keep in mind that when I use the term phoenix here, it's more of a western world thing. In Chinese history and mythology, it's Feng Huang, its own bird with its own mythology and symbolism distinct from the Greek, Roman, Egyptian phoenix, and representing our theme in a somewhat different way. Well, I'd say that's a good stopping point for today. Much of our discussion did center on the Chinese New Year, known in Chinese culture as either the Lunar New Year or Spring Festival, and perhaps I really should have made the theme about New Year's traditions, but we did find parts of our renewal and rebirth theme in there too. We found it in the symbolism of various Chinese New Year's traditions, sending away bad spirits and performing rituals to bring good fortune to the new year. Also in the Taoist beliefs of cosmology, with the universe constantly recreating itself and the qi constantly transitioning between two forms. And Fang Huang, the phoenix that is entirely its own bird, immortal without bursting into flame. Next week, we're going to look at some cultures in India, starting with their New Year celebrations. How far will we get beyond those? You'll have to tune in to find out. Until then, take care. <laughs>